Well, as I, it is always a blessing to come and share the Word of God. And so this morning I thought that we would take a look at Psalm 19. As we consider the book of Psalms, it is one of the most unique books in Scripture, and it's unique in a number of ways. You know, we normally refer to Psalms as a hymnal, which is absolutely correct. And we find within the Psalms, we find hymns of praise. For example, in Psalm 135.1, we read, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord, O servants of the Lord. In other times, we find that in the Psalms, there are hymns of lament. One in particular is Psalm 22, verse 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know these words were used by our Lord when he was crucified. And then sometimes there are hymns of petition, requests that made to God. In Psalm 16, 1, we read, Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. But not only is it a book of hymns of praise and lament and petition, but also as we look at the Psalms, it is also there and they instruct us. Think of Psalm 119, verse 71, where we read these words. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. And not only do they instruct us, but there's also times when we read the Psalms and we find them so encouraging. Psalm 116, verses 5 and 6, we read the following. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. And I was brought, and I was brought, the, I was brought low, and he saved me. And the point of all of this is that the Psalms, whenever you go to them, they direct our attention to the Lord. It is not all about me, although we are mentioned and we pray and we go before the Lord with our needs and seeking encouragement and instruction and all of those things. But in every case, the Psalms direct our attention to the Lord. The Psalms reveal to us God's nature and character. But even beyond that, the psalmist and those of us who know the Lord, it reveals the relationship that we have with God. We read through this and we see these wonderful passages uh, and not only does it reveal a relationship with God and the nature and character of God, but it also does so in a poetic form, a form that just grabs a hold of you. Let me give you an example in Psalm 8, verse, Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, and so here is the psalmist, and you can picture, I mean, how many of us have stood out on a starry night and looked at this moon? Oh, there's a, there's a harvest moon. There's a blue moon. There's all these moons that, that you see in the news that are going to show this week or next week or the following week, and the stars and all of that. And as he's looking at them, do you notice all of a sudden he is overwhelmed with what's before him? And then he says, he says in Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And that so in such a poetic form and what that little, those two small verses in a poetic form tell us about God's transcendence. The fact that God is so, so far above us. But yet in this next verse, it talks about God's eminence, that he's here. He's here. You're mindful of me. God connecting with us in his eminence. They also reveal God and our relationship to him in vivid pictures that are universal in character. And by that, I mean that anyone can understand them. Let me read two of them for you, how God relates to us and about this relationship. In Psalm 23, verse 1, 
one that is very familiar with us, we read this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Nearly every person in the world knows what a shepherd is. And so automatically they've got this idea of tender, loving care, someone watching over. And then he adds, I shall not want. Or how about this one? Talking about relating and, and showing a relationship in universal character. Psalm 68 verse 5 tells us that he says, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. People know orphans, people know fatherless people, and they know here that not only fatherless people do have a father, but they recognize this imagery of fatherhood. These are the things that God reveals to us in his grace. And the point is that the Psalms reveal our relationship with him, and they also reveal what it means to know God. There is such a personal nature in the Psalms and how we understand our relationship with God. Now, when I talk about this idea of knowing God, it is not something that, that is just simply, I have a knowledge of him. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. I just want to point out a passage of scripture to you. Here is Jesus completing his Sermon on the Mount. And he, he, write, he says this in Psalm, or Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And the implication is that they did. But notice verse 23, this awesome warning. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You see, there are many people today that would go around and say, oh, yeah, I know God. I, I, I know him. In reality, they don't know him. For example, I could share with you today. I know President Biden. Do you know President Biden? Yeah, we know. Well, what is it? We know about him. We don't know him on a personal level. And so there is this relationship that exists and the relationship that one has with the Lord. And Psalm 19 was written by a man who knew the Lord. In fact, 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. There was this intimacy between God and David and an intimacy that we all have when we put our faith and trust in the Lord. David knew. David knew God's sovereignty. He had turned David from a shepherd into a king. David knew of God's justice and the, and the discipline that God brought on his life for his sin of adultery and murder in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. God understood and understood and knew God's mercy and forgiveness because when all of that was done and God brought his discipline in Psalm 32, he begins by saying, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. You see, a true knowledge of God isn't something that we just say, yeah, I know God, but a true knowledge of God and seeing his character and his holiness and his righteousness and his love and his mercy and experiencing all of that transforms the life. Someone who knows God is not the same person they were before that. Let me give you an example. Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Here he is, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and he's up in a tree. And, he, and, and Jesus comes up to him and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house. 
this tax collector, this sinner, this man who has cheated and stealed all, stolen all of his life. And he goes and he comes to the house of Zacchaeus. And after dinner, Zacchaeus goes to the Lord and says, Lord, whatever I have stolen, I am going to replace fourfold. There is a, trans- there is a transformation that takes place. Or perhaps if you were to look at Acts 9, 22, 26, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul in, in, Acts, in Acts 22 and 26, he's given his testimony before the leaders. In 1 Timothy, he talks about how he is the chief of sinners, and yet God showed mercy to him. All of these things that God has done, what has happened to the Apostle Paul, he has been transformed from a sinner to a saint. And so Psalm 19, as we look at this psalm this morning, I think there are three, at least three characteristics, I'm sure there are many more, that talk about, or or three characteristics of one who knows God. What does it mean to know God? J.I. Packer wrote a book years ago, such a classic and wonderful book called Knowing God. And in that chapter, he asks some questions. Now, these aren't the same questions that he asked or make points he makes, but he talks about those who know God. Well, here are three things of those who know God from the, some Psalm 19. And the first one is this. Those who know God see him in all things. Let me read to you. Verses 19, chapter, yeah, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. It might be a little different. I'm reading from the ESV here. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pour out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun. He comes out of the he comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chambers and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from him. Those who see God see him in all things. And in this particular passage, he's talking about the idea of general revelation. General revelation is a term used by theologians to talk about the way in which God uses uh, creation and such and other things to describe the way in which he reveals his power and his glory to all mankind. I mean, you think about Romans chapter 1, it talks about God revealing his glory. In Romans chapter 2, it talks about men have a conscience, the sense of ought. What should I do? What shouldn't I do? What is it? That is God. Every every culture you have has rules, has regulations. And what is the sense of ought, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, Mere Christianity? What it is, is God working and saying, you have a conscience. Why do you have a conscience? Because I put it there. That is what he's saying. And then again, there are the good gifts, the rain, the crops. God's kindness to all mankind, the fact that we can have families. And all of this, all of these things are revealed to men and women who do not know him in an intimate way. But rather God says, I am here and I am speaking to you and you cannot deny my existence because a very creation declares my glory. The purpose of general revelation is to make men and women aware of God's existence, his power and his glory. Listen to what it says here in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 21. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has, been, what he has made so that men are without excuse. They're without excuse. 
They cannot deny God. They can in their minds, but in their hearts, it's never going to happen because God has revealed himself in such a unique way. A poet once put it this way. He said, God made the skies with voices clear and gives you eyes so that you might hear. Think of this for a minute. You're looking at the sky and with with your eyes, you're hearing. And what are you hearing? God, speak to us. This is my glory. This is what I have created. These things don't happen. This is all that I have given. All the psalmist heard. All the psalmist smelled. All the psalmist tasted. All the psalmist touched. All the psalmist saw. All of these senses are used by God to reveal himself to us in all of creation. They hear infants cry. They hear various things. They can smell the flowers. They can taste food. They can touch and feel the softness of things. They can see. And if they're missing one sense, these other senses don't close off. They still can sense and understand and be without excuse that God has created all of these things. You know, we look at shooting stars. We take long walks on the beach. We sit and watch the sunset. Or the sunrise, depending when you get up. But when you watch these things, and these things are creation, everything in creation brings wonder, is God revealing. And when you look at these things, it is God speaking to us of his glory and his magnificence. Years and years and years, I saw pictures of the Grand Canyon. And then I had an opportunity to see it in person. I was blown away. It was like, Whoa! Pictures don't do it justice. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but pictures do not do it justice. But you are just blown away. And it's not just being blown away, but you understand this is part of creation. This is God shouting at us. This is God saying, I am here. I have created all of this. And he speaks to us. And those who know God see him. And what is remarkable about what the psalm about what the psalmist is saying is that he made all of these comments without the technology we have today. Think about this for a minute. Remember in in high school or grammar school, whenever you had biology, you took that clear drop of water and you placed it down on a, on a little slide and then you put it under the microscope and, and all of a sudden you look in there and all of a sudden you think these things are all moving around that drop of water. He didn't have a microscope. And yet, the more technology you apply to the creation that God has made, the more glorious he becomes. That's no longer a drop of water. That's an environment for something to live. Or the technology that, that comes with, with a telescope. I mean, not only can, can did David see the moon and the stars, but now we look and you take a telescope, powerful enough, you can see craters on the moon. You can see the mountains on the moon. You can see all these things. You can see farther distance planets and recognize them as planets as opposed to just stars. You can see all of this. The difference of the one who knows God has a transformed life. We see these things and we delve into the technology and we look at these details and we say, oh God, you are wonderful. You are great. Not so for those who do not know God. And today we suggest the opposite. It seems as though the more God reveals his glory, the greater the denial. 
the greater uh, and the greater their denial, the greater is there going to be their accountability. You see, w w when they look at God, they do not want to see a creator. So, well, this happened by science. So let's go into the science. And every time they go deeper into the science, God says, oh, no, I'm not done revealing my glory. These are amoebas running around this dot of water. These are planets that you can't even see with the naked eye. But you've, you've got this technology. You can see them now. All of these things you can see. Those who truly know him see his glory in all things. And as believers who know God intimately, that we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are in him, we learn some things about God's glory. And when he says the heavens declare the glory of God as God speaking to us, we reveal it's we see that it is a glory that makes men and women accountable. Romans chapter one, you remember that passage? I said, did you get the ending of that? So that no one is without excuse. There is no one going to be able to say, God never told me. God never revealed it. He never showed himself to me. Oh, yes, he did. He showed himself to you in more glorious ways than you could possibly imagine. And yet, they still deny. But for the believer, when we go and we look into the sky and we see the sunset, we don't simply just see a beautiful piece of scenery. We see God declaring to us his glory. He is giving us a glimpse of who he is and what he has done. It is a glory that is revealed. It is a glory that all can receive universally. Do you notice every person has a sense? Every person has a taste, a feel, a smell, a sight. All the gifts, all of these things, these senses are gifts that we might know him. That we might know his glory, his beauty, his power, his grace. It is a glory that we have here. It is a glory that God has revealed that we can I mean, you know, taste good food. That, that, that we can feel like sticking our hands and grabbing a sheep that's not been sheared yet. The fur. And, uh, you know, some people take that fur and they put it uh, in a doorway or at their bedside and they step on the on the, what's it called? The lambskin. I don't know what it's called, but you know what I'm talking about. Right? You, they have these things. It's not only that, it's a glory that surpasses language. God's revelation is greater than just simply words. Do you notice what he said in verse 3? There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. It doesn't matter if you can only speak Chinese. It doesn't matter if you can only speak Spanish or Portuguese or Italian or German. Or, it doesn't matter what language you speak. God reveals himself in a universal way that does not require language to reveal his glory. It is also, as you see this, a glory that brings joy to the soul. And he gives us two illustrations one is, and it kind of mixes them together, but the first one is, as a bridegroom coming forth. Now, some of you say you had daughters and you probably went to the weddings and such like that. Uh, we go to a wedding today. Who's the most important person at the wedding? Is it the, perform the man performing a ceremony? No. Is it the groom and the best man? No. It's all about the bride. She comes down that aisle in all her glory. In this culture, it was the bridegroom. Do you remember in the New Testament back in Matthew 23? They got the ten lanterns and they're waiting for who? Are they waiting for the bride? Nope. They're waiting for the bridegroom. He's the one. He's the key figure. 
Well, that's what he's saying. That that like like the he's given this illustration, like a bridegroom coming to his wedding. The Lord is showing these things, and a strong man that runs the course. He's talking about when everything falls together, and a man is in the lead, and he's running, and he's running. We would put it this way today. He was in the zone. I don't know if you're familiar with those sports terms, but I don't know if it's still a popular one or not, but he's in the zone. You see, these kinds of revelations, it is a glory that brings joy to the soul. And it goes, nothing is hidden from its heat, which is interesting. When he talks about the sun and nothing is hidden from its heat, the idea is there's no escape from God revealing him. There's nothing hidden from its heat. As the sun beats down, nothing is hidden from its heat. As God reveals his glory, there is nothing that can keep him from being revealed. That is the idea. And so we stop and we think, what kind of transformation does the knowledge of God bring to us? We know it. We know intimately and we see this glory. So what does it do for us? Those who know him, see him in all things and they praise him like we were talking about earlier today. I mean, think about some of the things that we are that we are so used to and we don't stop and praise the Lord. For example, this is going to sound silly. But it's true. Jersey tomatoes. You may you may come over here and eat tomatoes, but I'll tell you something. No. You gotta go down to Jersey to get tomatoes. South Jersey. Uh, or you know, the other day I was looking at at our our uh we got a bird feeder in our backyard, and I'm looking at that bird feeder, and uh we have two bluebirds that are beautiful, beautiful blue, is probably as blue as that notebook over there. Uh and while the two bluebirds were on the one part of it eating the seeds. Here comes a, a woodpecker who's got this brilliant red head and he's going and I'm looking at this brilliant red color. I'm looking at this brilliant blue color. Uh, I, we watch the hummingbirds in the summer with the hummingbird feeders. All of these things, we see them and they're so cool, but we should not forget this is God revealing his glory. These beautiful colors. Why do we respond to such pretty colors? Because God is revealing. We see those pretty colors. This part of my glory. It's only a small part, but I'm showing you. These birds are here so you can see my glory. That is the idea. He is revealing himself. Do you see God's glory in all things? I mean, do, do you see his glory in the flowers? But here's the one. Do you see his glory in the weeds? Because all of creation reveals his glory. Or do you see God's glory like a couple of weeks ago when all the tree was, all the snow was clean? clinging to the trees. We live in more of a rural area, but all the snow's clinging to the trees and it's just really so pretty and everything. Uh, but then it started to melt and I had to sweep the slush out of the driveway or shovel it out. You know, it, it, it is the way in which snow melts part of God's glory. Yes, it is. So as I'm shoveling and I'm pushing the slush, I can't complain. I, I want to, brother. I want to, but I can't. Or, or how about you know, we look at a field and we think, man, look how pretty it is. Like you go down by the cornfields, like, look at all that corn or look at that beautiful field there. But do you give glory for the fertilizer? Uh, in this time, in the springtime, the, the farmers in the area in South Jersey where my brother lives, they have this manure slurry. And I want to tell you, if you've got sinus problems, take a drive then. You won't have them afterwards. It is like powerful, powerful stuff. And yet, even that, I don't know how else to describe it, horrible, unbelievable smell. Even that reveals God's glory because that is fertilizer. It goes to the ground. And as it in the ground, the plants grow up and the plants are eaten by the cows and the cows get done eating and we eat their steak. 
It's this kind of thing that takes place. This is seeing God in all things. God's design for us to know him. His hand is in all things. The psalmist knows the creator. And those who know God see him in all things. And they give him the glory. And the benefit from all of this, all of this glory of God, is so that we might see his glory. This is what God has done for us. He has just revealed himself and given us. And, and we look around and we see God is glorious. He is speaking to me each and every day through every aspect of creation. And I'm not worried about being accountable because I know him in a personal way. I know his son, the Lord Jesus. And so when I sit back and I see his glory, I can praise him. Oh, and he's saying, Al, I'm talking to you. This is my glory, these beautiful birds. This is my glory, Jersey tomatoes. This is my glory, snow and slush. This is my glory, and I'm showing you, Al, how wonderful and glorious I am. Think about it when we're going to see it without sinful eyes. When we're in glory and we're, we're, the, 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 the presence of sin is taken away. An amazing thing. Well, that's not all. Not only do we see, not only do those who know the Lord see God in all things, but as we look at the next verses, 7 through 11, I want you to notice that those who know God value his word. Take a look with me, if you would, at chapter 19, or not chapter, but Psalm 19, verse 7 and following. Notice what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than, they, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And as you look at this, you recognize God's work. And in this passage here, this portion... He gives six descriptive benefits of God's word. It's a literary device. Uh, if benefits come, a benefit is going to come from obedience. But do you notice, for example, it tells us how the law of the Lord is perfect. How it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true. Why makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Why are they right? Because they rejoice the heart. The commandments, the commands of the command of the Lord are radiant. And again, it rejoices the heart. The fear of the Lord is pure. It endures forever. The rule of the Lord is sure. Why? It's because it's altogether righteousness. One of the things that we oftentimes forget is about the dynamics of the word of God. It, when we talk about the word of God in all of these descriptions, and this is limited. This is limited. We don't have all of the descriptions of the word of God here. But when we go to the word of God, and why it's so vitally important and why we spend so much time reading it, why we show respect to it by standing sometimes when we read it. All of this is because it is unlike any other literature in the entire world. Let me read to you Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, the key factor is, for the word of God is living and active. It is not just a book you read, so oh, that was a good book, or I really enjoyed that. No, it is active and living, and it begins to work in our soul. And it's the vision of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It reveals God, but it also reveals our own heart. Uh, 
I don't know how many times you have ever done this, but there have been times in my life I'm reading the Word of God and I just have to stop because it has brought such great conviction to my soul that I didn't even know I was doing something wrong. And all of a sudden I said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> then you go back and read it again and say, maybe I missed it on the Reddit. No, I didn't. God's Word transforms us. It changes our hearts. And the psalmist recognized the fact that God's Word reveals not only God, but it reveals His character Look at some of the words he used to describe this. Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. Consider the power of God's word in the life of those who know him. It says here that the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. And the idea is it's complete without flaw. It is sufficient. Scripture is not defeated in any way. God's word will stand. Sometimes it doesn't look like that, living in a sinful world and coming into conflict, perhaps even in that argument you, you were referring to when you got, and I say argument in a good sense, you're sharing the word with someone, but God's word is active. It's either going to harden his heart or soften his heart, but it's going to do something with it. And it is perfect. It is complete without flaw. It is sufficient. And, per, and Lord willing, the person that asked for a Bible would end up looking at the word of God and having his life transformed by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to Matthew 4, 4. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And the Lord's word is perfect. And it revives the soul, the whole person. Knowing God through his word gives life. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 30. I will never forget your precepts. So you say, why will he never forget his precepts? I will never forget your precepts. For by them, you have given me life. I'm reminded of Romans 10, 17. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing through the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. We see that it was the word of God that brought our hearts and our lives. The work of the Holy Spirit through the word of God brought us to him. He also goes on to say that the testimony of the Lord is sure. The idea is that God's word can be trusted. And if God's word can be trusted, God can be trusted. Notice what it does. It makes wise the simple. The simple are those who would deny God. The simple are those who would walk away from the word of God. But scripture makes wise the simple. It reminds me of Proverbs 19 verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Sometimes in our culture, it doesn't seem that way. But there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and every knee will worship God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And they're not going to have a choice and they're going to see it. And what else are they going to see? They're going to see the perfection of God's word. They're going to see the assurance and the surety of God's word that God's word and everything he has said has come true. But for us, you see, that's the unsaved. When we see God's word is perfect, when we see God's word is sure, when we're in doubt and we're struggling, we can run to the word of God that he's given to us and look at it. He says here that the precepts of the Lord are right. And that's comforting as well, because through the word of God, we know that God is never wrong and it rejoices the heart. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, we're going to make decisions and it looks like the outcome of that decision. And it may even be the outcome of that decision. Humanly speaking, is going to be a nightmare. But you go to the word of God and you say, no, I was obedient to the word of God. He's going to honor that. 
and I have to trust in him, regardless of the response I get. Just as you're sharing Christ with others, you are going to share them, you share with them the right word of God. And that can bring rejoicing to their heart when they respond in the right way. But there is a certain amount of joy and stability in knowing and doing right. You can walk away and just say, I'm sorry this person responded this way. I hope the Lord speaks to their heart, but I can stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I was true. Your word was right and I was obedient to it. He then goes on and says the commandment of the Lord is pure or the idea of being radiant. And the idea is that God gives light and makes vision possible. It is through God's word that we are able to see God more clearly. Psalm 119 verse, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And simply put, God's word enables us to see him and spiritual truth. And then he goes on and he changes the, the pattern a little bit in verse 9. And he says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's kind of a difficult way. And, and it was tough to find exactly what it meant. But um, there's a couple of implications in this, in this particular passage. Uh, one is God's word is clean, enduring forever. Obviously, enduring forever. God's word is never going to pass. It says, and those who believe in God's word endures forever. Uh, and this endurance is the idea that God's word is enduring forever. It's relevant for every age. I had someone say to me one time, well, why do you even follow a book that's over 2,000 years old and older in the Old Testament cases? Well, it's because it's God's word. It endures forever. It's right. It's perfect. Um, I'm reminded of Matthew 24, verse 25, where it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away he goes on and begins to talk about some other things and the last thing he says is the rules of the lord are true and righteous altogether um, we can count on the word of god in all areas of life first peter tells us that he's given us all we need for holiness and godliness and god's word is always right i think and reminded of the book of first corinthians if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters are really big and strong on this idea of the wisdom of God in contrast to the wisdom of man. You remember in the opening portions of that book, there was some controversy. Some men were follow, said, I'm following Paul. The other say, I'm following Peter. The other says, I'm following Paulus. And others were saying, oh, well, you know, we follow Christ like that. And there was put, they were building up this, this barrier, this structure that took there and they were looking and depending upon man's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And he goes on to talk about the power of God's wisdom. But what's interesting, he, he, he spends his first four chapters talking about the wisdom of God and how right it is and how he shouldn't depend upon man. And then the rest of the book, he hits him with his rules, ones that are righteous altogether. And so he tells the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or tells the congregation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, give that man over, that sinful man, over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. He had to correct their discipline. He had to tell them to live a separated life, not to engage in the life of prostitution. In chapter 11, he actually corrects the believers there who, who were divided and taking communion. You had the rich over here, the poor over here. These people were, were starving, almost, you know, almost starving and hungry. These people here were getting drunk. And he said, this isn't what the Lord's table is about. He had to correct them. But all of these things, he gives all this wisdom in the first four chapters and talks about depend upon my word, depend upon what I'm telling you. And then for the rest of the book, he goes on telling him. 
And then he gives those who know the word of God. And as the psalmist did, he gives these metaphors. Do you notice what he says? It's, it's more valuable than gold. The most valuable thing of all. But that's not enough. He goes, much fine gold. You know, here's some gold. Oh, no, not gold. Here's much fine gold, the highest that you can give. And then he goes on. Um, not only with gold, the benefit of knowing him is more valuable than anything money can buy. But then he says, honey. He says, it's as sweet to my taste as honey. And the sweetest thing, and notice what he says in this passage of scripture. Um, he says, more desire than gold, much fine gold, sweeter than honey, dripping from the honeycomb. Sweeter than honey. It's, it, honey is sweet, sweet, sweet. But no, no, this is even sweeter than that. That is the way in which he's trying to describe God's word. And what's really sad about this, uh, because God's word today is more accessible than any has ever been in the history of mankind. And you begin to think about it. I mean, you remember the old days, and, and I'm sure some of you may, uh, like you wanted to see, okay, how often is the word love used in scripture? And so you would bring out this thing called the Strong's Concordance. It was a giant book weighed 50 million pounds. Of course, I'm exaggerating here. And then not only that, but the print in that thing was a nightmare. It was, <laughs> I don't use mine anymore. <laughs> I can't read it anyway, even with my glasses on. But I don't have to do that. I go to my computer and I go to the Bible search program and I put down love. And not only does it give me how many times it's used in scripture, but as I go down the list, it actually writes out the entire verse in the New King James, the King James, English Standard Version, New American Standard Version. I've got all of this just like that. And what's sad is it seems to me that more and more believers today are, are more biblically illiterate because they're not taking advantage of these things. You know, you have these wonderful things that you can use to learn, to study, to read the word of God. And it is just, they're not being used. Uh, uh, God's word is precious. It is more valuable than gold, much fine gold. It is sweeter than honey. And that is a sad aspect. Um, God's word is more than information. Uh, what makes it valuable is the fact that it expresses God's love for us. Kathy and I, when we, we were we we dated in high school, and when same time we graduated from high school, we went to different high schools, but we we were close by. So we graduated. Kathy went to school in Indiana. I went to school in upstate in, in New York State. And uh, during that first semester there, the only thing we had was, and you'll write you'll mail. Not email, not instant messages, not computers, none of that. If you want, if I wanted to talk to Kathy personally, it was $10 worth of quarters stacked in front of a payphone. So what we did, we did, we didn't have any money. So we, we wrote letters. And, and I remember it, when I was in, in college, the, the, the post office for the college was downstairs in the basement. And so every morning when I went up to the main building, first place I went was that, you don't know, the mail might be earlier. It might come early. So I would go to class. After my first class, what would I do? I'd check the mail. Doesn't come till noontime, but my first class was over at nine, but you never know. It might come and I checked that thing three or four times a day. What for? It's looking for Kathy's letters. And it, it, why? Because her letters expressed love. Her letters expressed uh, an, an intimacy. I was able to know her better. It didn't matter if she told me she had 
you know, Frank for Frank uh, Frank and Beans for lunch or whatever it was. Yeah, it it was a letter. She's talking to me, you know, kind of thing. And you think how more true of that is the Word of God? It is right there. It is right here in the book all the time. And God is expressing uh, His love for me. God is allowing me a greater intimacy with Him through His Word. These are the things that God does through His Word. He revives my soul. He gives me wisdom. He gives me a joyful heart. He enlightens my eyes. And so far, those who love God, they see Him in all things. They value the Word of God. And now there's one more characteristic. Look with me, if you would, at 12 through 14. And that is those who love God or those who know God desire to please him. Look what he says in verses 12 through 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let not let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so the psalmist knows God and he knows the wall that sin puts between them. And so the first thing he says here is, who can discern his errors? The psalmist is saying, I, 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 I'm not sure of my sins. And sometimes he says, I don't know why I sin. Have you ever asked yourself, why in the world did I act that way? Or why in the world did I say that? And he has the desire that even though he doesn't fully understand why he sins, he wants all of that removed. He wants everything removed in his life that separates him from him. And then there is the confession of presumptuous sin here. And presumptuous sin is sin that we do willful. Uh, have you ever said, I know that I should, but as soon as you say the word but, presumptuous sin. You know what's right according to God's word, but these are different circumstances. But you understand. But I think it's right. No. All of those buts, all of those things, that's presumptuous sin. It is the way in which we approach God and it is wrong. And he's saying, Lord, forgive me for these things. I don't want these things to do it. It's a defiance against God's word. And he says, let them not have dominion over me. Don't let these things rule my life. I don't want my hidden sins and the, and, and the sins that I'm unaware of yet to separate me from you. And I certainly don't want the sins that I willfully and easily commit each and every day to separate me, Lord. Don't let these things dominate me. And then he goes on and he goes on with his humble, humble prayer. And he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of a great transgression. And then finally, he has this desire. He says, God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice his description. The Lord is his rock. That's where he's going. He's holding on. He's clinging to the rock. He's holding on to the rock. And then not only that, but he says, my redeemer, the one who rescues me, the one who saves me from what? Presumptuous sins. From what? Willful sins. He protects me from these things. A desire to please God. And so there's a lot of talk these days about knowing God 
and many claim to know him. But as we look at Psalm 19, it's a challenge to us all. If, 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 and I'll put it in a personal context. If I know him, if I know God, I'll see him in all things. If I know God, I will value his word as much as I did letters from Indiana. If I know him, I will desire to please him in all things. And there's one more thing about this knowledge of God, a genuine knowledge of God, and that is what brings us eternal life. John 17, 3 says this, And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, why is it that we share God and his glory with others? Why is it that God shares and reveals his glory to each of us? So we might know him and have eternal life. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful, Lord. I, what can we say, Father? You have given us all creation. You have given us your word. Father, you have brought to us through your son, the Lord Jesus, forgiveness. And we stand here as recipients of all of these things. May we be thoughtful of you this week and in the way in which we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.